Hi everyone, this is Maggie, and I edited today's episode. This might be the first time you're hearing my voice, but like many other members of the Divided Families podcast team, I've been working behind the scenes for some time. In today's episode, Paul pulls back the curtain to introduce two more members of our team. Liat, who has made strides in partnerships for our podcast, and Miley, who is responsible for our clutch Instagram content. We originally conceived of this episode as a recap of National Adoption Month, but rather than simply rehashing previously released content, Liat and Miley lend their voices as adoptees to this ongoing conversation. As much as the stories we share might be revealing of certain social institutions on a large scale, they are also inherently tied to the lived experiences of individuals. The mission of this podcast is to draw connections between stories of family separation. But in looking for an overarching theme, we must remember the humanity of the individuals sharing their stories, that we are not abstractly drawing lines between social conditions, but honoring the individual experiences of real people. Because while this month has been a reflection on adoption as an institution, It has also been an effort to center the voices of adoptees and their complicated and diverse experiences of that institution. Families podcast. This is Paul. As listeners may know at this point, just want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Hope you're able to spend it with families and loved ones. This is a special episode in a lot of ways. One, because I feel like I'm so excited. You've heard recap and discussions between Eugene and myself, I guess, from the beginning of this podcast, the OG Lee clan members, but I'm really excited that you'll be able to hear from two additional members of our team that I feel like have been so essential to what we've been doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk a little bit, especially about the last two episodes we've had with Liat Shapiro and Miley Wynn. Liat has been working on external relations, research, partnerships on the podcast, helping it run smoothly, helping it get to a wider audience. Miley has really, I feel like, has had the social media acumen and designed these beautiful posts that I I feel like just capture the essence of the episodes a lot more than I think my words can do. And I think in particular, uh, even though we'll get to talking a little bit about our reflections about episode Glenn Morey and his conversation with Eugene in the Side by Side Project, as well as my conversation with Chris, Megan, Eleanor from the Adoptee Collective and their thoughts on why transracial system adoption should be abolished. But before we get to that, I just want to talk a little bit about this month, November, a National Adoption Month, where our team, Divide Families podcast, has decided to feature stories of adoption and how it relates to family separation. And in particular, Miley drafted and designed a post on Instagram that talks about a statement that recently came from the White House. Miley, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, help listeners put both National Adoption Month and I guess the U.S. government's, or at least the recent administration's stance on adoption in perspective. Yeah. So I 
made the post as sort of a reflection of the official White House proclamation for National Adoptee Month or National Adoption Awareness Month, because I was really just kind of searching around the internet to look for like the legitimacy of this month as a holiday, so to speak, or like a recognition, because I didn't know if it was sort of just kind of like an informal recognition for like adoptees to have these conversations. But it is it is official. It is a real White House proclamation. And as I was reading it, I was disappointed, but not surprised that the proclamation had the air of white saviorism and that they said that the month is to recognize like the sacrifices of birth families who give up their children for adoption and the heroism of families who adopt children, whether domestically or internationally. And while I think that that is pretty typical of adoption narratives, I think that it doesn't fully recognize the children or like the people involved. And I think that the Adoptee Collective actually mentioned this in their interviews. The the narrative as it stands sort of freezes adoptees as children, and they don't really focus on adoptees as adults. And I think that's really important about the episodes that we've shared this month is that the narrative goes past just children and families who have to give up their kids, but the lifelong consequences of adoption and the trauma that comes with that. And I think that that's important when we're talking about adoptee stories, not just adoption stories. And that's a distinction between adoption versus adoptees, like focusing the narrative more on the adoptees as people and not adoption as an institution. I'm wondering if you could give us a brief overview of how you yourself got interested in these issues or your personal connection to this issue. So, Liad, yeah, can I can pick things off. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I am a Korean adoptee. I was born in Pyongtaek, South Korea, which is a little to the south, I think, of Seoul, the capital. I was adopted at six months. And so I don't really remember anything about Korea from, you know, the first six months of my life. I was adopted to the greater Boston area. And that is where I grew up. I'm actually the eldest of five Korean adoptees. And so I think that gave me a a different perspective than most, just that uh, I was surrounded by people who looked like me, so to speak. You know, I didn't really grow up in a white neighborhood where I was the only Asian kid. I don't really remember how racially or ethnically diverse my neighborhood was growing up, but being surrounded by other Korean adoptees, it kind of just didn't make a difference, especially because we were all family. But being the eldest of five Korean adoptees also gave me I don't want to say the opportunity, but it just naturally opened up the door for me to see adoption from different perspectives. And by that, I mean, my personal relationship with adoption is very positive, but my family has seen just about the entire spectrum in terms of an individual's relationship with adoption. So, you know, from me who just celebrates my personal adoption to one of my siblings who dealt with suicidal ideations and uh, a more negative perspective of adoption. And so from that personal experience, that family environment, I guess, it's really opened my eyes, I think, at a younger age than a lot of the other Korean adoptees I've spoken to. It's opened my eyes to just how multifaceted and how difficult and nuanced adoption stories are. Miley, uh, I, I understand you're currently based in South Korea joining us there. So can you share a little bit about 
what brought you to South Korea, but also what brought you to the, the podcast and also uh, this issue? Yeah, so I like thousands of others got a follow from the Divided Families podcast Instagram. The idea of Divided Families is something that resonates with me as an adoptee and as someone who has always sort of felt that, that I felt that I was like taken away from a family or that my birth family had abandoned me. And as for my journey to South Korea, I, like Eugene, was a Fulbright scholar, a Fulbright um, ETA to South Korea. I didn't meet Eugene while we were here. He was in the cohort above me, maybe a few years before me. So we never, our paths never crossed, but we sort of have the same social circles. And I think that's why I got the follow from the Divided Families podcast. I was adopted from Vietnam when I was four months old. So I don't really have any memory of Vietnam at all. Me and my brother were both adopted from Vietnam. We were actually sold as twins because we both have the same birthday. And my parents wanted two kids, not just one, and they wanted to adopt us together. So I think there was a little bit smudging of the paperwork, so to speak. So we were both adopted as twins. And so we both grew up as sort of like the two Vietnamese kids in my family were the only Asian people in my family, of course. I lived in a military family, so I traveled around a lot. When I first came to America, I think I lived in Virginia first, and we moved around a lot. I ended up in Hawaii for a little bit, but most of my childhood was spent in Ohio, which is currently where my parents are now and where I did most of my um, intellectual actualization happened in Ohio. And I think similar to some Asian adoptees, I grew up in a very white neighborhood with a white family, but I also had access to a very diverse population um, because I'm in a college town and I did have an Asian adopted friend from China growing up. So yeah, I guess my relationship with like adoption and my upbringing sort of came pretty slow, but here we are now. Something that I'm also curious about is, I guess, both of your experiences in and with South Korea, which I know is a place that has personal significance for uh, all three of us, I'm sure in different ways. But I, I just remember listening to the conversation between uh, Eugene and Glenn, and Glenn talks about his first time going back to South Korea, I guess, since he was adopted, I think, I want to say for the first time in uh, almost 40 years, I think it was in 2005, and he was born in 1960. And just even though there's this kind of dissonance in his mind, feels like he isn't completely able to fit in, but he's, he still goes back for some reason and still keeps on searching. And I think that's reflected in, in some of the other accounts that our friends in the adoptee collective shared as well um, about going back to Guatemala, for instance. I'm just curious, Liat, I, I know you've been back to South Korea a couple times, have been able to meet and experience some really impactful things. Could you share a little bit about what your experience has been like there? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been back to Korea three times. The first time was in 2013 with my entire family. And it was a two-week trip. I was able to meet my foster mother. We actually stayed in the guest house of my adoption agency's building. 
And so we were able to just get to meet the staff. And it was a fulfilling time then. And I would still say that I have issues with the adoption agency, issues with their policies and how they do things. But the experience back in 2013 was very positive. Um, it was my first time back in Korea. My parents were there. My siblings were there. We had friends in Korea who kind of just took us around to all the touristy sites. 2015, I was there for six weeks studying in Seoul. It was a scholarship program and I lived with a host family. And that was very interesting because I was in Korea on my own, on my own under the purview of the U.S. government. And it was, uh, you know, studying at a university. But living with a Korean host family was very interesting to me because they wanted me to call them umma and appa, mom and dad. And I always associated umma and appa with what I would call my, not necessarily my birth parents, because my birth father is actually Filipino. My birth mother was Korean. So I would only really think of umma as my birth mother. But while I was there living with that family, they really became family to me in the sense that they, they did all of the typical stuff, I guess, that you would think of a Korean family doing, always just feeding you all the time, being on my case for, I don't know, not getting up early for school or whatever. So just really being integrated into a Korean family there was an incredible experience for me. I'm still in contact with them five years after. And, you know, we have a family group chat, you know, they call me their mangne, their youngest. And so I think being integrated into a Korean family unit was healing for me in a way that I I didn't really know that I needed and I didn't really expect. 2018, that was the last time I was in Korea and I was there for work. I am on the board of directors for a nonprofit organization called the Korean Kids and Orphanage Outreach Mission or KUM. Um, and in Korean, KUM means stream. And essentially what we do is financially support children's homes in Korea. We support primarily three and we fundraise in the United States, we're a virtual board. So everything that we do is, is virtual. We fundraise stateside and then we um, send that money over to the three children's homes that we support. And they use that to provide preschool and college scholarships, as well as hosting different events for the occupants of the children's home. And the reason why I say occupants is because I feel like a lot of the times when we talk about children's homes, we think about children. But one of the children's homes that we support, or rather one of the homes, I guess, is a special needs home. So it's a home for children and young adults, and not even young adults. Some of the people who live there are actually in their 40s. So just individuals who have uh, cognitive and physical challenges. It's very fulfilling for me to give back to the community that I came from. And I think that's one of the reasons why I continue to work with KUM, just because I see it as a personal mission to give back to, you know, the little brothers and sisters over in Korea. And so for me, that's a way to engage with um, my community of origin, so to speak. And also, I think one thing that I found also fulfilling in a rather indirect way is my interactions with other Korean adoptees who are within my social circles, who find out about KUM, and then who are also motivated to give for a similar reason. And I think it's just so incredibly powerful that we are able to not necessarily recapture a sense of our identity, but just, I guess, kind of validate everything, you know, the emotions and the um, thoughts and just the questions that we might have and give back tangibly to, you know, the children we might have been. And again, that's not to say that adoption is 
a rosy process and should be celebrated all the time because that's obviously not true. But just for me personally, being able to give back in this sense is you know, so incredibly meaningful. I think one thing that I want to ask is something, I think a theme that's come up time and time and again with a lot of interviewees on the podcast is closure, but also a sense of belonging uh, that comes both from separation and reunion, I guess just a family and its relationship with belonging. And I want to ask both of you how you felt about I guess, listening to some of both the conversation between Glenn and Eugene and also some of the stories that was featured in the side-by-side project. For those of you who haven't checked out the project, and, and Glenn describes it in the episode, it's, I believe, 100 interviews all shot in a similar medium uh, with adoptees from Korea who are now all over the world, from Australia to Sweden uh, to the United States. And I just think it's very powerful because as Glenn says, there's no single story. There is that TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie that he mentions, that Glenn mentions in his interview um, about the danger of a single story. And I think that that's really important for adopting narratives because again, the adopting narrative has been very much focused on the family and like the parents and not so much the children. So there is sort of this mystique around adoption stories. There's like, there's not a lot of representation. And so I think that it is really important that there are a diverse showing of adoptee experiences because it humanizes us in a way that has been lacking in other mediums. And so I think that these very forward interviews are really important to show the diversity of our experiences. Yeah, I, I, I think Miley, their words are perfect. It would be so cool to have a project where it was Vietnamese adoptees or Chinese adoptees, just everybody from just around the world, you know, and including domestic adoptees, just having a similar kind of thing where the background is the same and the setup is the same and the format is the same. That would be really interesting to me just to see, just to be able to like draw a connecting line just across all spectrums of, you know, nationality or ethnicity. That would be super interesting to have a larger platform, you know, for that similar kind of format. Yeah, I'd be really interested in listening or viewing something like that as well. And I think in some ways, this podcast itself on a meta level is kind of Mm -hmm. an attempt to do that with Korean American divided families, which is, I guess, kind of my background and where I was coming from. I'm in an attempt to connect different stories, feature different stories of family separation. I think it's Glenn uh, who talks about in that episode the sense of solidarity or the sense of, I don't know, comfort or maybe courage that adoptees got, interviewees got when they heard other stories, other interviewees' stories, and how that made, I guess, the barrier to entry a bit lower, made them feel a little easier to share their own story. Uh, I, I don't know how um, comfortable or where both of you are at with in terms of sharing your own adoptee experience, sharing your own background. But I'm, I'm just curious how that statement resonates with you of, you know, listening to others in, in the adoptee community come out and share their stories. And if that makes you feel like, oh, I should share mine too or, or not. Yeah, I think that having access to these different stories because I think that it's really important because I think as adoptees, 
there is this sort of unspoken, there's unspoken rule where you have to be very careful about how you express your opinions about your adoption because you don't want to seem ungrateful, especially for your family. Like I grew up in a very loving home. I love my parents, but I am still a little weary to talk about any like negative emotions that I have about adoption as an institution and like my own personal experiences with like that kind of trauma because I don't want to come off ungrateful. Like I don't want people to see me and how I criticize the institution as like, oh, you're just ungrateful. Like you need to be more thankful that your parents like rescued you from this poor country. So I think that it's important to to see all of these other people sharing their experiences to sort of have that leg in and be like, oh, okay, I'm not the only person that feels complex emotions about adoption. There's like all these people who are sharing their stories and having similar experiences, awakenings, if you will, coming out of the fog, as the Adopted Collective would say. What a perfect transition. Speaking of awakenings, and and, I mean, I wasn't familiar with this notion of coming out of the fog, but something that I also really appreciate, I guess I'm giving ourselves a pat on the back here about the Divided Families podcast, is that I feel like we try to feature a variety of perspectives, uh, not just a singular narrative on family separation. But I learned a lot from my conversation with Chris, Eleanor, and Megan from the Adoptee Collective. And at least to me, they came off as very um, grateful and appreciative, but at the same time, uh, very critical of the system of transnational transracial adoption. And each of them, I feel like in their personal stories, talked about how this coming out of the fog, this consciousness was actually one that was very uh, radicalizing. I'm really curious, too, because I guess all of us are from the same generation. Both of you share different lived experiences they do. Uh, But I'm curious what you thought about hearing both their stories and also kind of their reflections from those experiences of coming out of the fog. I really appreciated hearing their stories. I think because I grew up with a positive perspective on adoption, it never really occurred to me to think about people who were coming from a different perspective. But I think, you know, with my sibling who experienced a more negative relationship with adoption, that really opened my eyes to the fact that other people have different experiences, different relationships with their adopted story, with their identity as an adoptee. And so for me, I learned so much just from listening to everybody's journeys. You know, I don't really think that the coming out of the fog concept applies to my personal story, but I learned so much from those stories. And I'm always so grateful for people who share their perspectives and are really willing to be that vulnerable because I understand that it takes a huge amount of vulnerability to, you know, step forward and share something that is so deeply personal. I don't think that I would have that courage and that bravery. Um, I'm sure it would take me a much longer time to, you know, to get to that point where I would be comfortable being as vulnerable as, you know, as it takes to really just, in a sense, just put your heart out there and explain this is, you know, this is what I think, this is what happened to me. So I, I have, you know, so much respect for all of these different stories. Again, you know, that just goes back to the point that Glenn mentioned, just the danger of a single story and just really listening and learning from other people. I agree. I think that I had not really considered the possibility of the complete abolition of 
the adoption like as an institution. And I think that's not because I disagree with that. I think that's it's more because I didn't even think that was like a possibility. Like I wasn't sure about how that would work like systemically, like how internationally it would require a lot of work. And especially like in country, like there's a lot of things that are happening economically, um, politically that I think that would be hard to sort of change on a, on a big scale. But I think that it's ambitious. And I, the whole idea of coming out of the fog as an adoptee does resonate with my experience. I don't have negative attitudes about my adoption um, and my family specifically. Um, I, I, again, I love my family. <laughs> I love my mom. I love my dad. But I think that I really started getting interested in like the politics of adoption and like sort of the social ramifications in the long term, because I went to an adoptee camp, like an adoptee summer camp through Holtz International. I was, I'm not a Holt adoptee, but I met a lot of Holtz kids through that program and like having them share their stories about their adoption. I think that it was when I was younger, I, I went to this camp in middle school. At the time I was like, oh, this is great. Like I love being around all of these like other Asian people that have the same experience as I do. But I think that I also, as I got older, was sort of, I found myself disillusioned by these narratives that like, oh, adoption is great. It's like all of this like cheery thing. But of course it's a camp put on by an adoption organization. The people in the adoptee collective, their stories were when they got older, they sort of had this realization that like their adoptions weren't all these like cheery, sunshiny stories of like perfect fairy tale endings. And I think that the coming out of the fog happened for me specifically when I was a freshman in university, when I was participating in a counter protest, someone essentially had asked me if I would have rather been aborted than adopted. And that's when I kind of realized that like people don't exactly view me as a person always they always it's kind of like i'm just a, a piece in an adoption story like i'm a, just a character in this fairy tale story and that's really when i came out of the fog and realized that it was like something needs to be changed yeah i'm still trying to process and sit with what you just said i, I think i don't know how, how that feels like exactly uh but what you said about you feeling like people not often treating you as a person on your own, but as just as a piece of a larger adoption story. But I feel like that's so often the case with family separation or divided families, where one person is just seen as inextricably linked to their family member, especially on a political level. And I think that makes me think about, as I mentioned before this conversation, I just finished reading Nicole Chung's memoir. It's a Korean adoptee called All You Can Never Know. And I think a lot of it is inspired by her own search for her uh, birth family it is sparked when she is pregnant with her first daughter. But I think toward the end of the memoir, she talks about how she no longer thinks about adoption as good or bad, uh, instead more along the lines of like realistic or oversimplified. And I feel like in a lot of cases, family separation in general <laughs> seems very oversimplified. And I don't want us to talk about anything just purely in terms of black or white, good or bad. But one idea that did come up in the conversation with Chris, Eleanor, and Megan was this idea of one image of adoption being kind of about like something that's beautiful, creating family, and another image of adoption as one that's 
you know, negative and separating family and how an adoptee has to deal with both duality and that dissonance. I'm just curious of how that statement, if it resonated with, with either of you, this duality of adoption is something that is divisive versus something that creates and builds and strengthens family. I, I think that the the differentiation between like a creating family and separating families is really pertinent. I think that most of the narratives surrounding adoption right now are very much like a creating family. Like it's a beautiful thing that these children who couldn't have a, like parents sometimes are connected with parents who couldn't have children. This whole idea and this idea of kind of like a, a made family or a found family is really prevalent. But like that is part of the experience, which is great. But I think that like to make a family, you have to recognize that the parts of that family come from other places. When I grew up, it, I wasn't really um, cognizant of the idea that I had been taken away from a family or that I had this feeling of loss. As I started to think more about my heritage and my roots, it was a very jarring experience to suddenly be burdened with this feeling of loss, to like feel as if I, in the, ga- in like the experience of gaining a, a family and gaining a really loving, adoptive mother and father, that I also lost a birth mother who I will probably never be in contact with and who essentially gave me away. And I think that the duality, again, is really complex because some days adoption is a really, like for me personally, like thinking about my adoption is like, this is great. I love everything about this. Everything is hunky-dory. But then I personally will go through bouts of this is a very traumatic experience that I have to still process as I'm getting older and something that I will probably never be finished processing as someone who will always be struggling with a sense of identity as an Asian American, as a Vietnamese American, as someone who's never really felt like completely accepted by the Asian American identity either. It's just a whole complex set of emotions, I suppose. I promise this will be relevant, but I need to make an anime reference here. No recap episode. It goes without an anime reference, which is that one of my favorites, Full Metal Alchemist. It's one of my favorites, and it's all about one of Newton's laws of physics, which is my worst subject. But you know, for every reaction, there's like an equal and converse equal exchange. I don't know if this makes the uh, adoption or adoptee experience unique in that gaining and creating a family comes at the cost of losing or kind of dividing another family. But yeah, I, I do think it's something that we don't see, or at least is not exposed in a lot of other stories of family separation. And I think it's the first time that I thought about it in that way. So Leah, any, any thoughts on your end on this duality of the adoptee experience? It's definitely real. It's interesting because I've definitely had moments where I'm like, I wonder what my birth mom's doing, especially, um, so I'm 23 and she had me when she was, I think she would have been, she was very young. So 22, maybe 23. 
And so I know that as I was approaching the age that I think she probably was when she had me, I was like, huh, it would be so strange if I was like, I tried to imagine myself in her shoes and I was like, I can't do this right now. Um, (laughs) And that kind of overwhelmed me for more than a couple of minutes where I was just like, wow, you know, I, I have this little thing that I told myself growing up where if I was really, really upset and I didn't want to talk to anybody, I would like talk to my birth mother And I saw her as like the middle star in Orion's belt. And that was kind of just like, just this really vague, but still very bright. A star isn't a person, right? But I just felt as if I was, if I was directing my thoughts to the middle star in Orion's belt, it was a way for me to just talk to her. And that was kind of how I comforted myself growing up. And it wasn't really anything very consistent. It was, you know, if I was really, really upset, like if a family member had passed away or something, I would just talk to my birth mom or, you know, if... I was confused about something. I would just, you know, and I, I kind of just created this alternate entity, I guess, for her. And that's kind of just how I dealt with any of the the hard moments, you know, that were associated with not having her in my life. And I think that now as, as I'm older, well, because I, I did send letters to my birth mother, actually, and I know that she is alive because the adoption agency said that she received the letters, but she didn't want to have any communication with me. And I was actually kind of relieved at that because I didn't want to have to deal with talking with her, which sounds horrible. And I know that that is, you know, not, it's not the most gracious attitude for me to have had, but I was almost relieved because I didn't have to sit down and really process all of that stuff. Because I don't think that I've really ever sat down and processed, you know, I don't really have this person in my life, the person who gave me life, just because I've always created this separate entity for her, if that makes sense. So in a sense, she's always been a part of my life because that's how I created it to be, which I think is another reason why I see myself as not really having a coming out of the fog moment. Why my adoption story, why I have such a positive view of it, because I created this kind of, but because I had created, you know, this entity for my birth mother, it was there and there was a fixture in my life. So I didn't really ever have to sit down and think about, okay, so she was my age, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But then once I did, I didn't really want to dwell on it that much. Well, it could have been me being a coward, but it was also just me just not wanting to sit down and really think through things. And so I just rechanneled it through my work with Kum. And so now for me, it's kind of like, yes, I don't have my birth mother in my life. I definitely, you know, did not grow up in Korea. And so that Korean identity is also kind of missing, but through my work with Kum, I'm able to find a lot of fulfillment in those missing pieces. So in a sense, I see the children that I support, that I work with as really filling that gap and filling that hole in my heart, so to speak, um, which is, I think is one of the reasons why I'm so attached to the work that I do with Kum and why I'm so attached to um, the children that we work with. And, you know, just thinking about that, it's interesting because I feel as if my identity as a person, I guess, kind of changes when I go to Korea. Because when I'm in Korea, people refer to me by my Korean name, which is Cho Myeon. I'm very rarely called Liat when I'm in Korea. The only times they call me Liat, my friends, is when they have to ask me a question about English, which is so weird. I don't understand it. But if they say, hey, Liat, I know that they're about to ask me something about (laughs) the English language. But when I'm in Korea, you know, every single time that plane lands on the tarmac at Incheon, that's when I always feel as if I want to cry. Always. Every single time. And when that plane's about to, you know, take off to go back to Logan or wherever, you know, to go back to the States, I also feel the need to cry. And I usually do cry whenever the plane lands in either country. Um, And I think that is 
me just subconsciously realizing that there was a life that I could have had, but I didn't have. But yeah, I guess just to to deal with all of that, I work with Goom. And then I also love working in behind the scenes capacities like I do with DFP, where we're able to elevate the stories of others. And so I think in a very roundabout way, um, you know, that's how I deal with the duality of, you know, having a family, yet not having a family. Thank you for sharing and reflecting. And I'm so glad we've had this conversation because I feel like I've learned a lot about each of you and just have a lot to think about myself. I think it's not often, you know, we've had uh, almost 20 episodes at this point and each of them I've, I've learned something different, but I think this conversation honestly has been one of those, I don't know about aha moments, but I guess moments where I think a little bit deeper and more critically about family separation. Something that we end every single episode with is, and as we close, I guess how our, our podcast, our team is commemorating National Adoption Month. Is there anything that you feel like listeners can do to educate themselves, uh, learn more, support adoptees, all of the above from your perspective? Yeah, I think that people should try to be more diligent about listening to different adoptee stories to sort of break this narrative that we've all really been fed about adoption being this really sparkly, happy ending kind of deal, because that's not the whole story. It is not, adoption isn't the solution to a problem. It's really the beginning of one. It's really just a symptom of a larger issue, like political issues and things. And I think that it's really important to maybe go watch the documentary from Glenn Mori about the side-by-side project and maybe looking into the Adoptee Collective podcast, um, looking at different political organizations that are fighting for the rights of adoptees, like Adoptees for Justice, any sort of adoptee citizenship, different political groups that are fighting for citizenships for older adoptees, um, because that's a really big issue now as we talk about immigration. Um, There are a lot of adoptees who are being deported because any adoptees that were brought to America before I think 2000 or 2001 are not inherently American citizens if their parents did not file the paperwork. So that means that a lot of people who grew up in America and who maybe have no other life outside of America are now being deported to countries, their their mother countries that they've never been to. They don't speak the language. It's, it's not uncommon now. So I think that's a really important step now that people can take is to sort of educate themselves about why people are being deported from different communities and how they can help adoptees who don't have citizenship stay in the country. And with that, uh, I guess, wish all of our listeners who stayed until the very end, uh, happy Thanksgiving and stay tuned for season two. And uh, I guess celebrate that we're almost done with 2020. Thank you. 
Whether this was the first episode you'd listened to from us, or you've been with us from the start, thank you. This episode marks the end of our first season, and in honor of that, we will be taking a short break to collect ourselves, celebrate the end of a hellish year, and thoughtfully prepare new content for you all. In the meantime, please keep in touch with us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast, where we will keep you posted on our forthcoming episodes. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the sick beats. Stay healthy and safe over this strange holiday season, and we'll see you in 2021.